from the Journal of Corporal Toby Youngius, Oxfordshire, 2021. I'd wager my story isn't much different from most others. I've had my share of victories and setbacks, culminating in a run of years of unforeseeable turmoil that have taken an incalculable toll. Nevertheless, I'm still here, and I intend to make the most of that while I can still remark on that fact. I'll openly admit that you can find battalions of soldiers out there with more practical talents than I am able to employ. But if I am two things beyond my present station as a white scarf, I am this, a lover of stories, and perpetually driven to help those around me and ease their burdens. And that is enough, it would seem. Thanks to the astute judgment and keen judge of character of Mr. Shaw, I've been paired up with Corporal Greg Downing for over a year now. And based on that time, and the good that we have done for each other, I sincerely hope that this partnership continues for a long time yet. But for now, we shall continue to follow the history of the reunified states of America, and one of its most notable figures. The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington, and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Through the Wind Door with your friends Greg and Toby. Well, here we are, ending up having a much longer season four than expected, thanks to having started with seven episodes dedicated to Cartographer's Handbook, as we have mentioned multiple times at this point. We are finally going to get into the proper of the main event for season four, the book Arlington. Hmm. Only took us seven episodes to get started with the main event, so I'm sure we will be disciplined from here on out. <clears throat> wink, wink. Yeah, I don't. Given our track record so far, I wouldn't always necessarily necessarily that discipline is one of my super strengths or anything like that. <laughs> I, Certainly I, not I, one of mine. I am one that's coming up with. The outline for discussion, but of course you're always contributing to that. And I am the one that is often trying to bring us back to the outline, much the way that uh, Laura Kate Dale always has to corral James Stephanie Sterling and Conrad Zimmerman back to the topic at hand of video games during their regular podcasts and everything like that. But I think when the two of us get going, either one of us can just go on and on about a subject so you know sometimes it's just gotta take up that space i think Mm. and as long as people enjoy it and as long as i continue to to keep my editing knives ready sharpening them up then the end product that's that's making me nervous knowing (laughs) that someone's ready with a knife if i go on too long your words Uh, not mine Yeah, but the knives come out after the conversation happened. The knives come out in order to... Oh, well, to... that puts my mind at rest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's the audiophile that should be quailing in the corner going, Oh, no, please don't cut me. <laughs> wow, okay, that got dark early. Uh... <laughs> okay, yeah, no, this is fine. This is fine. But, hey, this just sucks for audio, Toby, because we're actually putting video on and Greg and I can see each other. This means I will live and it will only be my voice that dies. No, Arlington is a darker book, by the way. Uh, we should mention that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, um, that is actually one of the very first things that I wanted to talk about. Mm. There are... I, I mentioned this a little bit in the Discord in the days leading up to our recording here, 
that thus far, New Century has a dozen books. Is it 12 now? Is it 13? Never mind the amount of number. It's got a lot of books under its belt at this point with a lot of different genres that it's playing around with and a lot of different themes that it's playing around with. And whenever people in general get asked about New Century, they're like, okay, which is your favorite book in the series thus far? And over the course of the last five months, that number has ballooned from nine books from last year to Sunset is 10, Panther Soul is 11, Nightfall is 12. So yes, back in Time and Space, which was just released yesterday, or technically at just at midnight GMT, so today, I don't know. And in case you're wondering, yes, Greg has already read it. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Of course. I, I am not going to talk about it. I, I am going to leave nope. my feelings about Back in Time and Space on the shelf because I was already really fired up about it last night. I just talked about it with Toby for the better part of a half an hour just a moment ago. TLDR, it's a great book. I still need to let my feelings and thoughts bake about it completely before I will be able to discuss it with Toby. And if you want to know my uh, brief thoughts on it, I've only read the first chapter, just haven't had the time for more. And even that was enough to make me go, what the fuck? What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, so 13 books. And there are going to be a number of people that haven't read the newest books out right now. Although I think that the number is growing over the course of the last just few weeks even because we've had different people chiming in with having read stone spring maidens because they bought the paperback or uh jesse ferguson who contributed heavily to back in time and space said that uh he is now going back and actually going to be reading stone spring maidens and panther soul and nightfall so that he can catch up on all the stuff that he didn't know about while he was assisting with the most recent book. Mm. So there's going to be there's going to be more people that have read the newest books. And so the conversation for what is your favorite book in the new century oeuvre might spread out a little bit. It's ever complicating. But a year ago, 2 years ago really, back in 2019, the ones that tend to pop up the most frequently were either going to be Tiger's Eye, Arlington, and Princess Thieves. Mm. Those are a pretty good three books to center around. Uh, also, because at that point, in 2019, the audio drama for Steamheart was still dropping, which is why Steamheart wouldn't necessarily be on that list. Also, Steamheart is almost in another category than the three that I just mentioned, because it is a monster-huge book. Mm. Um and a monster huge audio drum to go with it. Reflecting back on when I first listened to the audio drama of Arlington, I can definitely see why people would list that among their favorites. Having said that, coming back to it now with you and talking a little bit about what... The key events. The key events, but not just the thought-provoking stuff, just the emotional weight of it all. I'm going to say right now, before proceeding into our main discussion on chapters one through four, that liking Arlington is a little bit liking a movie that is really hard-hitting emotionally it doesn't necessarily always have a happy ending to it but you respect the places that it took you to the intellectual places the commentary on society and politics you respect the emotional places that it took you to even if sometimes the equivalent of that is to tear your heart out of your chest and to just stamp up and down on it a couple of times the be- one of the best examples that I could come up with was perhaps loving 
Arlington is a little bit like love it, me loving Memento, which I know is kind of a little bit of a loaded metaphor because not everyone, probably not a lot of people, feel the same way as I do about Memento. I also know that Alex in particular is not a fan of Memento, so for his sake, a comparable movie that I know we both love would probably be something like Pitch Black. Another good example might be the HBO series The Wire, which has humor and commentary and is very smart and has some amazing dialogue. But I think even fans of the series would agree that at the end of the day, even with each season of The Wire, it's a depressing fucking show. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like the, the, the love of the story comes with some caveats. Mm. It's always a difficult thing that feels mm-hmm. a bit inaccurate when you say, I love this thing or I really enjoyed this thing when it's not necessarily something that you, in a literal sense, enjoy. It is not something that will just spark moments of positive uplifting or just make you laugh or some things that put you in a happy or positive headspace in fact sometimes with these stories you've been deconstructed and Mm. you feel like you're just a jellyfish like that's flopped onto the floor and you just have to let all of the feelings that this story has sparked within you wash over you and then come back into you and just come to a place where you can accept that Mm -hmm. and that's a that's a process that is difficult to explain why we seek that in the same way that people often go why do we enjoy horror if you know it scares us why do we like being scared and Mm -hmm. i think this one is actually more difficult for me to answer but i suppose they both have the same root explanation which is that these are the means by which we unpack things that challenge us us in life the ideas or concepts or people or just scenarios whether we are familiar with them or not whether they speak to our own lived past experiences or just allow us to see through a fictional setting a window into a situation we have never had to experience they elicit empathy for people both fictional and real who you are now your mind is turning towards the people who have had to go through that and going through all of that living through all of this and seeing these myriad emotions that are so difficult to come to terms with so difficult to understand how you can keep that all within Mm. and still move forward the stories that handle that in a responsible and effective manner the ones that we end up loving in spite of the dark places they take us to are the ones that kind of allow us to process all of that not find some final answer to all of them by any means but they're just things that we feel better equipped to process as a result of the places these stories took us to and some of the conclusions that we might draw away from them even if they don't feel definitive as conclusions go Mm. yeah it's a rip-roaring time arlington is (laughs) Well, I I will say that Arlington has some really fun moments in there, along Mm. with everything else. And that like it has it has more fun moments pound for pound than Cartographer's Handbook. Well, it, it it definitely has more fun moments than Cartographer's Handbook, because the experience of that is relatively dry overall. But, I mean, mm-hmm. it also has more fun moments in it than Let Them Go, which is itself a horror narrative. That's true. That is true. You know? and, mm. and, and, and there are some really good moments, especially when 
Rebecca is being peak Rebecca in that story or some of the other stuff involving uh, Amanda and, and Rafe and, and Rebecca all together. I like to call that being crimson peak Rebecca. <laughs> and I can, I can use this comparison because mm. by this point, now that we're actually talking about Arlington and the presumption is that everybody here listening to us now has read the first four chapters. If you have can go away. Exactly. If it, uh, this is this is what we're talking about here today with Arlington. This is not just an introduction to Arlington. We are going to talk about things that you should have read by now. So don't listen further if you haven't actually read or listened to the book. Do your homework. Don't tell me the dog ate it. <laughs> or the manticore ate it, because that would be thematically resonant. And that's not a spoiler, because you've read it, haven't you? Why am I getting, like... <laughs> Cassie with our audience. <laughs> exactly. Well, with our mm. silent audience for the yeah. most part. So we, we don't know what, what's going on in their heads or what they've actually been doing or anything like that. Back on topic. Arlington is a great story the way Malcolm X is a great movie. And both of those are tragedies. Mm. Because they end... like the, the final climax of the story... Climax may be the wrong word. The, the final denouement of the story is the death of the main character, basically. Yes. And, and we know that right mm. from the beginning because that's how chapter one ends. Yes. We get, a, we, get a, we get a major inciting event complete with Annie Oakley, one of our favorite characters, protecting someone that's important to the RSA, failing to because how the fuck can you be prepared for a manticore? And then mm. the final notes of chapter one Pay close attention, my dears, as it details the tumultuous events of those days, which ran up to the point that Arlington died. Point is, no. story is a tragedy. It, mm. it tells us that right from the beginning, mm. before diving into less tragic events leading up to that point, basically. Yes. The specific wording that this is the story of the days leading up to it, it sort mm. of sets it that this is not necessarily going to be a story about his death. It's not about, you know, all of this is why Thomas Arlington died. It is more about, like, what he did with his last days. Um, so let us begin with our notes then as we start talking about the beginnings of this particular story. One of the first things that I ended up covering when I was pondering how to begin talking about this book is that whenever we start talking about New Century in general, but also end up deciding, okay, what chapters are we going to cover when in what blocks of space? I have to come up with a number of chapters that are going to have enough meat for us to talk about in a two-ish hour setting, but aren't going to end up being too much, and ideally should probably have some thematic resonance overall. They work as a block. Yeah, exactly. And one of the connecting threads that I came up with here is that these four chapters basically introduce us to the four biggest narrators mm. of the story. There will be times when other people are speaking, but not necessarily narrating with like only like one exception. When chapters are introduced, they're often going to be introduced as a journal entry for Annie, a journal entry for Frank Butler, a journal entry for Thomas Arlington or a journal entry for Sarah Arlington. With only a few exceptions, those are our major players and those are our narrators. Mm. Done through the lens of, just like uh, Secret Rooms, these are journal entries as opposed to some other, some other narration style for the story. Much mm. like with Let Them Go, which was narrated by a nameless voice provided by 
uh, third person omniscient narrator or I, I always uh, get a bit unsure with the term because uh, it's meant to be like that that term always implies that there's a certain amount of insight that the narrator provides that the characters don't necessarily have but a lot of the narration to let them go and other new century stories frames things in a way that you are nevertheless even if it's not the characters speaking you're occupying their emotional space or you're feeling as if you're like that's where the emphasis lies so you're not necessarily being granted more information than what say abigail is aware of Mm -hmm. we've covered four books so far Mm -hmm. arlington is going to be number five yep there are going to be different narration styles going forward as well, especially mm-hmm. as you just mentioned in terms of how much the narrators know before going into the story. Princess Thieves in particular does a clever and very topsy-turvy thing. That one's a bag of cats and a can of worms, uh, depending <laughs> on... Uh, if you read the book, it's a can of worms, and if you listen to the uh, audio drama, it's a bag of cats. Point is, is that by and large, the narration style of this book, much like the narration style of Secret Rooms, has a very specific structure to it. And as I've said, it it focuses around the personal writings, and therefore the things that they know and choose to reveal in their journal entries, which are comprehensive again because of the way that thomas was encouraging in his cartographers as well as in you know for himself and his wife and other important people to be completely honest with emotional stuff and putting in details such as you might actually put into a diary rather than something for 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 general consumption or whatever So that whole experience is more personal and more honest than you would expect for like some other kind of media where someone might control the narrative more in terms of the things that they choose personally to reveal. And if there's one thing that New Century has always excelled at, it's on the communication level of as to trying to be as honest as possible, either directly or indirectly. Mm. It's a part of the ongoing theme of communication. And I think that that ties in, exactly. which is that it's about coming to it from an honest place and mm-hmm. trying it's not just about not concealing your emotions. It's making a concerted effort to actually like, properly convey them Mm -hmm. one of the other things that i immediately came up with is that frank and annie are actually the best people at this juncture to be like i haven't done like a piece by piece comparison in terms of like how many of the parts of the book are thomas narrating and how many parts of the book are sarah narrating and everything like that but a lot of the stuff that is going on is colored by the presence of Frank specifically. Mm. Because Annie is sort of off doing her own thing for most of the book. Uh, And so therefore, Frank is the one that is interacting with the Arlingtons and asking them questions and being the person that they bounce ideas off of a lot of the time. Mm. Um, obviously the two of them will have alone moments as well as we you will see later on in the book but frank is very much a witness and not a passive witness he contributes to whatever situation is going on due to mm. his access to these two very important people it was here that i kind of worked myself up into a little bit of a tizzy Stories can and do have multiple protagonists. That's one of the things we discussed a lot in Tiger's Eye. But are all four of these characters actually protagonists? I ended up dragooning Maureen to discuss this at time of editing, as someone who was very familiar with the story, 
we hashed it back and forth, looking up things on the internet, on Wikipedia in particular, and discussing if there is a term for a protagonist that influences another protagonist in ways that are different from a deuteragonist or lancer, impact character, or antagonist. Which then sets us down the rabbit hole of, who is the antagonist of the novel Arlington? Because the answer to that would help us determine who is and isn't a protagonist. For the sake of all new readers, I cannot reveal the content of our conclusions. In truth, we didn't even have any concrete conclusions, only preliminary answers. But I share all this information with you now, because these questions will definitely be topics of conversation during our final episodes, where Toby and I try to break down Arlington as a whole. Something that Thomas actively mentions is this position is one that is quite important because by its nature you will have access to all of this information. He's not telling him that he should like sort of close it out and not think about it. All he needs to worry about is his protection. He is saying you should be like listening to all of this so that you can also contribute and say your honest piece about all of this. That's what he's looking for. Yeah. Have you ever seen... I don't remember if I... I probably asked you before, but I don't remember your answer. Did you ever watch The West Wing? I saw a good number of the first season episodes. Okay, so... At one point, it became a bit too painful to return to. Yeah. No, understandably. But as someone that has the proper context... Frank Butler ends up being someone to Thomas Arlington, not unlike the characters that advise President Josiah Bartlett in that TV show. There is no direct correlation, because Frank's temperament is not a one-to-one with Josh Lyman, Toby Ziegler, or C.J. Craig, and also doesn't have the long-term relationship that would allow him to be like Leo McGarry, Bartlett's chief of staff and closest friend. But functionally... Frank is very much what Lin-Manuel Miranda would refer to as someone that is in the room where it happens. He is a generally friendly and personable guy that Thomas is going to rely on to a certain extent in order to give him feedback on the things that he's hearing, everything like that. But he's also going to have issues letting Frank in a, too much. Mm. Um, and obviously we'll see more of that as it goes on. Uh, there are going to be elements in these four chapters that we're talking about right now, but you know, that's, that's basically the dynamic that's happening here yeah. is that he is going to have access. He will be a bodyguard, not just during times of work, but also during downtime where he will be protecting not just Thomas, but potentially his entire family. He is also going to be a sounding board and help steer Thomas mm. if he thinks that there's other things that need to be considered along mm. the way. Something that comes up a lot in these opening chapters, as well as the book as a whole, is that this institution is not one that is trying to create a group of faceless soldiers who just obey orders and become just tools. It mm. is actively encouraging and celebrating individuality or at least the ability for each member of its government to be thinking soldiers mm -hmm. as soldiers who assess things and that means that you're not looking for someone to just be a gun you're looking for someone to be an assessor someone who will never just stop at like here is the line that I was given, and that's all it will ever be. It's always about, okay, what was your assessment of the situation? Or you have been given all of this intel, what do you think about it? The, the whole story will show that there is so much complexity and hardship and dark shit that comes across because of the wide range of opinions and individual characteristics of people but nevertheless the book is espousing and these characters are espousing that if people are all 
directed towards a unified goal, that doesn't mean that they should all just be one person. They should all be their own people and all bring more perspectives to things that challenge and assess and shape the direction of things that it shouldn't just all be it shouldn't be one massive set of tools serving the purposes of one person like thomas yes but but that's the theory mm -hmm. and as we'll see play out in this book and later books you know, uh, there theory are and practice. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Theory and practice do not always work out to be the same thing. Mm. But again, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's yep. turn to our outline. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our episodes on Arlington are going to involve a lot of discussion of the story and plot as they are revealed to us. But if you are interested in a larger deconstruction of what we begin discussing here, you'll be happy to know that Maureen and I will be recording our first episode of Century Tales very soon, where we will be talking about the theme of agency in New Century, and the way being a soldier reflects said agency, particularly depending on who the commanding officer is. So, just very briefly to return us to the subject that brought us to the place that we we're in, we really like Frank and Annie. The reason why the book starts with the two of them is that they are going to be good introductions to this new world, this new part of New Century and the cartographers that we have not seen up till this point. Mm. We have seen the two of them out in the field. We have not seen what it's like in the seat of power. No. Mm. Frank and Annie being our eyes on the field in this story adds to the impression that we are traveling further up the chain of command in this mm -hmm. because in secret rooms they were the authority because mm. our two main protagonists to that were greenhorns they're people who are being introduced to all of this they're not completely naive to or coming at this with nothing, both Abigail and James are shown to have a decade of survivor's experience that most other people in this world would have, but they are particularly well-suited to being cartographers. But in that, Frank and Annie were like the sort of authority figures. In this, they are the cartographers called upon for people who have a higher authority than them mm -hmm. which just adds to this impression that we're going away from the frontier the front lines and we're going more towards the seat of government and mm -hmm. things like that where your insight into the front line is actually going to be people who are like the officers the like captains and uh i forget frank's rank at this point sergeant no, no, Major Butler. Major Butler. I like he, he's, do he is higher. He is higher <laughs> ranking than Annie, and Annie is, uh, you know, as we have seen, a pretty significant leader in her own right. Oh yeah. Um, much further down the line, we're going to see how and where the two of them first met in the pages of Steamheart. That's mm -hmm. not actually going to be here, but yeah, no, Frank is a major. Yes. So, which means he is a <clears throat> major deal. Uh, <laughs> you can't see the expression that Toby's giving me right now, but it's great. <laughs> He's just sort of peering at me like, uh, like Fry from Futurama. <sighs> okay, mm, mm, punchy. Yes, got love this, loving this energy here. Uh, I'm not. Uh, oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no i am i am <laughs> all right so yeah frank and i work very well not just because of that but because if thomas and sarah are set up as 
major protagonists, not just Major Butler as a major protagonist. Frank and Annie work well because they are a second pair of characters to share the narrating and point of view duties with the eponymous Arlingtons. Because like Thomas and Sarah, they are a married couple who work in the same line of business Mm. and are equally gifted at their discipline. But I will be open to argument here. I imagine that Butler or Annie may argue that one or either of them is actually probably a better crack shot than the other. But Mm -hmm. the point is, they are equally gifted at their discipline. Let's be fair. Even so, there is a sense that both couples, as independently competent as they are, have their potential fulfilled by the presence of their partner. And even if they're not by their side right now, because as you say, Annie is actually doing her own thing for the majority of the book. She's not with Frank for most of it, or maybe she won't be by him for any of it. We are still in the early stages. But nevertheless, it's the knowledge that they're out there, which is enough to make a difference and for them to feel their influence. Mm, Yeah. So we've done a whole lot of introductory discussion. Let's start talking about some of the subjects of these first four chapters. Yes. Manticore! Well, so this, this opening sets up a lot. The way Annie is first introduced to us, even though she is self-deprecating and humble, mm. we are inclined to believe, based on what we have seen her do in secret rooms, that she is that she can do anything, you know? So it's interesting to highlight her in this first chapter of still being awesome, but not mm. invincible. She gives us more insight into the world through her perspective, much the way that Frank will be our eyes for a good portion of the rest of the story. And when you're talking about the importance of narrators, as we have been doing, It's not just what they say to the audience. It's about how they say it and how those words reveal parts of the speaker. Mm. Annie's abilities as a marksman, uh, guard, just a hero in general, come across before she's even fired a bullet. And that comes down to what you're talking about with her narration and not just the what, but the way she imparts her words. She's constantly analysing her surroundings, demonstrating a capacity to somehow be detached enough to calculate and assess risks without getting overwhelmed by the human faces around her. Yet she's also empathetic and connected enough to people that when she meets the eyes of a boy who looks like he has lost a lot and is nervously considering the worst... She's able to wordlessly entreat him to reflect on the people he remembers who would not want him to do this. Mm. And we can't tell if any of that would have really come across to that boy. But considering he does, in fact, withdraw and not take any further action, the hope is there, at least, that Hart won out in that circumstance. And that's part of what I just mentioned in terms of the way this chapter reminds us of Annie's strengths and what she is capable Mm. of. That, that as you say, we don't actually know what went on in the boy's mind, but Mm. it's easy for us to believe that maybe something about her manner or about the look in her eyes might have been enough to convince him to sublimate his anger or frustration or anything mm. like that. We, we know that the human side of things is one of those things that Annie is very good at. Mm. It, it, that, so the, the book sets us off, the chapter sets us off, showing Annie somewhat in her element here, dealing with threats mm. that she is not always going to be able to solve. I mean, there was the whole thing that happened in New Athens back in Secret Rooms. Mm. But it play it plays to her strengths overall. Mm. And so therefore it's that's almost as as dangerous as that moment could be, it's almost heartwarming to see Annie seem to pull that off. Yeah, because 
as much as she is like in a situation where her strengths can be really utilized, the narration is absolutely conveying that she is nervous, that this mm-hmm. might be too much. And it's because the stakes are really br- brought across. Mm-hmm. She is making it completely clear that as much as Hayes is not the most impressive of men, he is necessary for the future. Mm-hmm. And so she gets the stakes on things. And what she says in Secret Rooms in that encounter with Carl and Virgil and her conversation with Abigail when she says that half the time this tactic doesn't work, the tactic being that, you know, offering them a place for the actual cartographers and then abigail says then why do you do it at all and she says because half the time it does and it's not that she's treating that moment like a hey if we fail that's fine but it's more the case that she's able to assess when she can take a risk there's a chance that even if the effort to let them join up with the not necessarily the cartographers but just with the groups that are coming under like government supervision the fact here that she is plainly aware of and conveying to us is that she knows that this is not a case of like half the time it can be okay and if it does succeed that's great but if it doesn't then that's just part of the territory she only has one haze she can't lose this person who's been put in her charge which puts the tensions way up in this opening chapter yeah i mean just to follow on a little bit from what you were saying a moment ago with secret rooms it's even less of a case than if it fails then it's okay it's a fact that they have so much more to gain with more person power Mm. Mm. but we have more to gain by succeeding than by failing. I'm not ready to sacrifice my partners or myself just because I don't trust folk. Someday this is going to get you killed. Maybe so, but we ain't rebuilding nothing with more corpses. You know, the further we go into the series of New Century, the more I'm realizing that I often go back to that scene, Mm. even though it's quite a small scene, and I think that what that it's, says to it's me because is, of Carl, isn't it? It's because of Carl, man. <laughs> um, but like, no. In all seriousness, I think that what that scene apparently did very well was kind of show and embody what the conflict that will be a recurring conflict throughout New Century, which is the knowledge that things could go south and you could do something that would make it so much easier, but it's not about just surviving. It's Mm -hmm. about making things better and the effort to do that. And even when it's uncertain. Yeah. Also, Carl is the best character. (laughs) (laughs) One of the major recurring themes, you're right, is is Mm. emblematic in in that first conflict and resolution Mm. uh, in Secret Rooms. Another comparison to draw upon in terms Uh of the difference between Arlington and Secret Rooms is that this is actually bringing in a little bit of the serious dourness of the cartographer's handbook, because Mm. it's here where Annie is saying in her journal, and therefore to us, the audience, that the RSA is weakened only a notch behind desperate. Mm. And that's not something that Secret Rooms made as a parent. Yes, she would have... She she read the cartographer's handbook to everyone at Weirwood, and they did it again in New Athens, but because we didn't know the contents of the handbook in Secret Rooms, we didn't know about the statistics that were present in there in terms of the number of people lost and therefore the number of Wendigo that there might be out there that still have to be dealt with. Mm. Uh, We didn't know about the 12,000 Wendigo that General Curtis had to face in order to take back the District of Columbia. So this is Annie bringing some of that energy back into here. 
and talking about why Hayes is as important as he is for the various reasons that he is important, why she is protecting him now. The fact that it's bad enough that they can use a middling man, as she puts it, like Hayes, mm. and that means that we're punched in the gut all the more when he gets killed by the Manticore. Mm-hmm. That, combined with the tension of Annie's narration as she surveys the crowd, establishes a tension and a sense of being on the razor's edge that will be setting the tone for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. If Secret Rooms is about two people doing the best they can in the world that's within their reach, mm. which makes the presence of Lucy's speech in that book all the more appropriate, then Arlington is confronting us with characters for whom the decisions and mistakes they make will have wide ramifications on the people of America. This is perhaps the first time in the books we've covered so far where the characters are able to affect things on a wider scale as this. You know, barring knock-on effects from what Trow and Miguel managed in Tiger's Eye and mm. whatever the characters of Let Them Go in Secret Rooms will be able to do in future books as a result of their actions. If matters feel uncertain, tensions seem high, and the general outlook seems desperate, it might just be because these characters have no higher authority that they can turn to, it's up to them to navigate their worlds, whether political or the dangers of the frontier, and do the best with what they've got. Right. This is all taking into account the dangers that Annie and Thomas and the RSA government already know about. Mm. You know, the, the Wendigo as established, as we will learn about later, the opponents that the RSA, the human opponents the RSA mm. will have to deal with in the South, complex negotiations with people that are not necessarily a part of the RSA. Mm. All of that is already bad enough on its own. Then the Manticore shows up. Mm. And the Manticore frightens us and knocks any further away from feeling comfortable with the situation not simply because yeah not not simply because of the manticore's durability or mobility or its monstrous appearance but because it didn't just attack people it targeted the one person that annie said outright at the beginning that they could not afford to lose Mm. and that makes it exponentially more of a danger than the Wendigo do. Because, because so far, the Wendigo are just appear to be animals. They're crafty animals, they're canny animals, but it's not quite the same as something that is both a monster and yet appears to move with intent. Yes, and seems to be quite tactical. This was a tactical assault from something that we do not understand that seems monstrous and animalistic, but clearly moved with a specific mission in mind. And that's a relatively good stopping point for today. This is a little bit of a return to shorter episodes due to the fact that we did manage to discuss all of our topics in one sitting this time around, but it was still a session that lasted about two hours and 50 minutes with the pre- and podcast conversation included. With the editing so far, we're likely looking at about three episodes of 50 minutes in length, although that will possibly also expand with more editorial inserts and some relevant conversation and fun moments in outtakes. Will this continue throughout Arlington? We'll just have to wait and see. To close us out, one of the most cheerful-sounding songs about struggle that I have ever heard. I am not going to say that I was a major fan of this band, like some of the other artists I have featured, but I got addicted to That's What You Get back when the harmonics game Rock Band consumed my life. Since then, the lead singer Haley Williams has gone from being a fun teenage rocker to a compelling adult singer-songwriter 
and I will always be interested in hearing more from her. This song is particularly significant to me because it was featured in the movie Happy Death Day to You, one of the few horror-adjacent films I unequivocally love. Spoilers, but the song that featured in the first Happy Death Day will also get its time to shine in future episodes. But until next time, this is Paramore with Hard Times. Hard Times.